0: Well, two weeks ago, when introducing this study to you, I asked how many of you enjoyed reading poetry. And I got a few hands from uh, some of you. Well, at our house, let me share you, with you a little bit about us. We, we uh, love poetry, we enjoy reading poetry to our kids. And uh, we have been doing so since they were very, very young because we wanted them to to know and appreciate the finer things in life and to know and appreciate some some of the classic poems from some of the most skilled poets of our day. And I can tell by the looks on your faces you're impressed this morning. And I've actually brought a passage from one of these classic poems that we've been reading to our girls for years, and I want to share this with you this morning. I want to read this to you. And I hope you're enlightened by what you're about to hear. All right, you ready? Here it is. I could not, would not on a boat. I will not, will not with a goat. I will not eat them in the rain. I will not eat them on a train, not in the dark, not in a tree, not in a car, you let me be. I do not like them in a box, I do not like them with a fox, I will not eat them in a house, I do not like them with a mouse, I do not like them here or there, I do not like them anywhere, I do not like green eggs and ham, I do not like them, Sam, I am. Enlightened? Yeah, thank you. Was tough to get through I had to pick an easy one of Dr. Seuss, I get tongue-tied so you enlightened by that? I thought so I just wanted to share with you how cultured we are at, at our house at our house we study from the best, one who has his PhD in poetry, right? Dr. Seuss himself but here's my point as we have said already in this series there are many different kinds and types of poetry, right? You have have children's poetry, like the one I just read to you, Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham. You also have what are called sonnets, which are short poems with a rhyming scheme. You have fables, which are poetic stories. You have didactic poetry, which is a form of, of poetry that is intended to instruct us, to impart wisdom to us, all kinds and types of poetry. Well in the Bible you have what is called Hebrew poetry and that's what we're studying in this series through Psalms And remember I told you in the introduction why this is an important study that we have because a fourth of the Bible is written in Hebrew poetry 25% of the Bible 25% of God's written revelation comes to us in the form of poetry and because this is true we cannot ignore it can we we cannot say as believers poetry is just too hard to understand and it's irrelevant therefore I'm not gonna take any time to study it I'm not gonna fool with it I'm just gonna completely ignore it folks if we did that we would have to skip over a fourth of the Bible we can't afford to do that can we because Paul tells us that all Scripture. Is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness all scripture is so we cannot afford to skip over large sections of scripture can we now we have to learn how to read it how to study it and how to apply it to our lives and that's the purpose of this sermon series in this series we are studying hebrew poetry in the book of psalms and like i said a few weeks ago this can be a daunting task can't it because this is the largest book in the bible 150 chapters remember we said it 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 spans a period of time of over a thousand years but though that's the case we talked about the fact that there's a way to categorize the psalms That makes studying them much more manageable. And remember, two weeks ago, I I listed these different categories for you. I said, though the, the book of Psalms is poetry, within the book of Psalms are various kinds and types of Psalms. And I listed those out and I explained them to you. I said there are wisdom Psalms, praise Psalms, Psalms of lament, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of remembrance, Psalms of confidence and kingship Psalms. Last week, we looked at a psalm of wisdom. This week, we're going to be looking at a psalm of praise. Praise psalms are in the major category in the psalms because there's there's quite a few of them. And the praise psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning is Psalm 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, and we'll be there in just a moment. Psalm chapter 8. Hopefully, you're going to find this morning... As we look at this praise psalm, that praise psalms are are fairly easy to identify. They're pretty obvious. Praise psalms have a very simple and clear theme, and that theme is worship. In these psalms, they're extremely upbeat and positive. The psalmist is basically saying in these psalms, "Life is good. I'm good with God." He's good with me. Life is good in general, so I'm just going to worship Him like crazy, and I'm going to call for others to do likewise. That's pretty much the extent of a praise psalm. And most praise psalms follow a distinct pattern. There are three characteristics of praise psalms. First, praise psalms typically begin with a call to praise. In praise psalms... You normally have the psalmist beginning by calling upon the listener or listeners to praise the Lord to worship the Lord let me give you a few examples listen to Psalm 47 verse 1 and you have these passages in your spiritual growth guide by the way Psalm 47 1 listen to this: clap your hands all peoples shout to God with loud songs of joy you hear that the call to praise notice there's two imperatives clap shout What's the psalmist doing here? He's calling for people to worship. He's saying clap and shout to God with loud songs of joy. He's calling for people to praise and worship the Lord. Listen to Psalm 100 verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The psalmist is calling for all people everywhere to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Listen to Psalm 146, 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Notice here, the psalmist is calling upon himself to praise the Lord. So this is a key characteristic of a praise psalm. Praise psalms typically begin with a call to praise. The second characteristic of a praise psalm is that there is a reason for praise given. A reason for praise. Oftentimes in praise psalms, after the call to worship, you will then have the reason for worship given. Normally after the call to praise, you will see the word for or because used. The psalmist will say praise the Lord, worship the Lord, and then we'll say for or because, and then we'll go on to give the reason why God should be praised. And this section normally makes up the bulk of the psalm. The psalmist will normally call upon people to worship the Lord in the first two lines and then will spend the next six to eight verses giving the reason for praise. Let me share with you a few examples of this. Psalm 47 again, listen to this. Psalmist says, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. There's the call to praise. Verse 2, 4. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. So the psalmist calls upon people to clap their hands and shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why? Why clap? Why sing? Why worship? Because the Lord Most High is to be feared. He is to be revered. He is king over all the earth. And that's the reason for praise. The third and final characteristic of a praise psalm Is these Psalms normally end with a further call to praise? So after the call to praise and the reason for praise, the psalmist normally gives a further call to praise. Let me show you an example of this. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 146. Just turn over there for a minute. Psalm 146. Mark Psalm 8. Turn over to Psalm 146. And look at verse 1 again. Psalm 146, verse 1. He says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. There's a call to praise. Look at verse 6. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Here we have the reason for praise. The psalmist is basically saying, because God is creator, He is worthy of our praise. So this right here is the reason for praise. And then notice how the psalmist ends this psalm. Look at verse 10. Toward the end. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. There you have it, a further call to praise. And it's similar to the beginning, right? So so praise psalms normally begin with praise and they end with praise. So once again, you see this theme that runs throughout these praise psalms from start to finish is worship. These psalms are all about worship. These psalms call for all people and most importantly, God's people to worship the Lord for who he is and for the great things that he has done. Okay? So those are, that's what a praise psalm is. Now let's take these characteristics and let's take what we know about the praise psalms and let's apply it to Psalm chapter 8. Turn back to Psalm 8. Notice first the call to praise. Psalm chapter eight, verse one. "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! There's the call to praise right there. And notice the first point of praise in this call to praise is that God's name is great in all the earth. Look at verse one again. "O Lord. Our Lord, how majestic or how great is your name in all the earth. Now notice here that this call to worship here is really more understood and implied than it is directly stated. Notice the psalmist doesn't just come out and give the command here to worship, nor is he calling upon people to worship directly, but it's implied here that the Lord should be worshipped in all the earth. Now, I want you to notice the first four words in this psalm. The first four words in our psalm, O Lord, our Lord. Now, you need to know that that there's a little bit that has been lost in translation here. In our English translations, we have the same words used for Lord. The first two usages of Lord, we use the same word, but there are two different words used in the Hebrew. The first Hebrew word used is Yahweh, and the second time the word Lord is used in the Hebrew is Adonai. So the psalmist is essentially saying here, O Yahweh, our Adonai. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why are two different words used? Let's look at them both. First, let's look at the word Yahweh. The name Yahweh is one of the most sacred names for God in the scriptures. It was considered so sacred, the Jewish people wouldn't even speak that word aloud. That's how sacred it was. And in in the name, it emphasizes and stresses God's godness, his transcendence, his otherness, his distinctiveness, his holiness. And the word Adonai, on the other hand, it's more personal. It means ruler, or master, or lord. So the psalmist is essentially saying here, O Yahweh, O holy and transcendent and sacred and majestic God, my master, my lord, my ruler. Now, why does the psalmist include both names here? Is it because he just thought it sounded cool? It does kind of sound cool, doesn't it? O Yahweh, our Adonai. Sounds cool. Is that the reason why he did it? Did he just do it without thinking about it? No, the words of Scripture are very important. None are there by accident, and these certainly are not. The psalmist here is setting up a pattern that is going to be seen throughout the rest of this psalm. For the rest of Of the psalm the psalmist is going to be emphasizing the fact that God is both Yahweh and Adonai on the one hand God is Yahweh he is he is limitless he is other he is transcendent and majestic and infinite and on the other hand the psalmist is also going to make the point that God is our Adonai he is mindful of his people he is near to us he is personal and imminent and close. By using both of these names, the psalmist is emphasizing God's transcendence, his otherness, his distinctiveness, and his imminence, his nearness, his closeness. And this is the pattern we're going to see throughout the rest of the psalm. Look again at verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Another translation uses the word excellent instead of majestic. How excellent is your name in all the earth? The psalmist here is emphasizing God's greatness. His majesty, is excellence. And, and in the following verses, he goes on to give us the scope of God's excellence. And he does this by showing God's excellence from far away and God's excellence from up close. First, let's look at his excellence from far away, which is the second point of praise here. In this call to praise, he shows God is glorious from far away. The psalmist says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Notice how great this is. The psalmist is saying that God's glory, His greatness, His excellence is above the heavens. In other words, His greatness is far beyond the place anyone could imaginably go. His excellence, His greatness, His majesty, His glory is beyond the scope of heaven. Wow. Not only that, but He is also glorious up close from nearby. And that's the third point of praise here. God is glorious from up close. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I like the way the NIV reads it here. In the NIV, this verse reads, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Now, what does that mean? Well, some commentators believe this is talking about infant Israel. I think that's a bit of a stretch in this passage of Scripture. You have to put a lot in to get that put more in than what, what I think's there. I think, personally, we need to go with what we have here and consider that the psalmist is talking about babies and infants. Remember, this is, this is poetic literature and one of the key features of Hebrew poetry is the use of figurative language. The psalmist here is speaking figuratively and metaphorically here to make the point that God is made glorious through the greatest and the least of his creation. He shows himself to be glorious and magnificent and excellent far beyond the highest of highs, far beyond The highest point imaginable far beyond the heavens. And he also shows himself to be glorious and magnificent and excellent in the lowliest of lows. In the lowliest of created beings. He's glorious far beyond the heavens. And he's glorious out of the mouths of babies and infants. He makes the point here that he has shown... To be glorious, even through the weakest and most feeble of created beings, so much so that they're able to silence his greatest enemies. As many of you know, we just had another baby this past May. And one thing I like to do with Joy, I, I like to do with Ava and Edie as well. There are nights when I'll sit back in her room and I'll rock her and I'll just look down at her and stare at her in amazement that she's here and that she's been given to us. There are times when I I look at her and I look at Ava and Edie and I just praise the Lord because he gave them to us. You know, I can't wrap my mind around those who go through that process from conception to birth and beyond without considering God's work in it all. When I look at my daughters, I see God's work. I see God's glory, I see His excellence, His majesty. Though I can look up into the night sky and, and marvel at the glory of God, listen, I can look into the eyes of my little girls and marvel equally. Those girls as weak and as delicate and as fragile as they are display God's glorious existence as much as anything else in all of creation. Wow. Their very existence is strong enough to silence the fiercest of God's critics and enemies. That's the point. So this is the first part of the psalm. This is the call to praise. The psalmist makes the point that God's name is great in all the earth and that His greatness, His excellence, His majesty, His glory is seen from on high and it's seen from below. It's seen from far away and it's seen from up close. His glory reaches far beyond the scope of heaven and is also revealed out of the mouths of the weak and the feeble. So that's the call to praise. let's look get the reason for Praise. And notice, like we said at the beginning, this takes up the bulk of the psalm. Verses 3 through 8 give us the reason for praise. Notice in these verses that we're given two reasons why we should worship the Lord. The first reason we're to worship God is because God is creator of everything. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place. Let's stop there for a minute. Notice here, the psalmist is showing us right off the bat that God is majestic, he is excellent, he is marvelous and glorious because he is creator. Notice he refers to the skies, to the heavens, as God's heavens. He says, when I look at your heavens, you ever thought about that? The skies above are God's they're his he created them he's holding them into place the psalmist continues with the moon and the stars have been set into place by you he's showing that God is to be worshipped because he is the powerful creator who has made all that is those of you who have boys at home or who have had boys at home at one time you know they like to brag and challenge one another don't they Especially in, in feats of strength One way boys will challenge one another is they'll, they'll, they'll try to pick up heavier objects than the other To show how strong they are, you know I remember being out in the neighborhood with with my friends growing up and we would challenge each other in this way And someone would would do something to show off their strength and another boy would say "Ah, that's nothing. I can do that with my pinky, right? You all ever say that? I'm sure I said that a few times. I can do that with my pinky. The psalmist is basically making this point here. He's saying God is so strong, so powerful, that he made the heavens and put the moon and the stars in place with his fingers. And for that reason, the psalmist says we should worship him. He's saying, God has created all that is with ease, with his fingers. Therefore, He deserves our praise because He is our all-powerful Creator. Folks, creation should move us to worship. There are some today who believe that greater science literacy leads to the death of God. Many believe that the more you know about science, the less you will believe in Him. Well, many of the early pioneers in science completely disagree with this logic and progression It was Johann Kepler who viewed science as this look at this. This is his definition of science Thinking God's thoughts after him What he meant by this was that when a scientist is engaged in the study of our world What he's looking for are the laws that God has put into place the laws that God has established from the beginning Another great mind by the name of Isaac Newton. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Listen to what Newton said. The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. You see, these brilliant men's belief in God did not erode away as they became more knowledgeable of our natural world. Instead, their faith in God increased. It increased. That's to be the natural progression. The more and more we learn about our natural world, the more and more we study creation, the more and more we see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. So we're to worship the Lord for that reason, because he is creator of everything, but that's not all. The psalmist also makes the point that God worship because God is mindful of us. Psalmist makes the point here. God, who has made everything with his finger, mindful of us. Look at verses 3 through 4. He says this the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place? What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, though God is creator, he is also mindful of us. Think about that. Think about all the magnificent and wonderful things God has made and then think about this. Of all the things that he has created, we are the most significant. We're the most important in the eyes of God. God has set us above all the rest of his creation. Think about that. Think about the the, the planets in the universe, the billions of stars, all the the celestial and terrestrial beings, and none of them are more significant than we are. Why? Because God made it that way. God created us in his image, and we alone are his image bearers. Of all the things God has created, we are the ones who are most like him. And the psalmist here is reflecting on this and he's he's thinking about all the incredible things that God has made and then begins to think about the fact that God is more mindful of man than anything else in this world and that moves him to worship and it should move us to worship as well. Look at verse 5. The psalmist continues by saying, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, let me explain this a little bit because there's two different ways that this has been interpreted in our our Bibles. In my Bible, the ESV Bible that I'm reading from, translates it as heavenly beings. It is the Hebrew word Elohim which can be translated God, and it can refer to uh, heavenly or celestial beings. And depending upon which translation you have, your Bible will either translate that God or heavenly beings, or I believe the King James even says angels. Now, does that mean the Bible is flawed? Does that mean there is a mistake? Well, remember when we talk about the Bible being infallible, being without error, we're talking about the fact that it is inerrant, it is without error, it is infallible in the original manuscripts. And it's inerrant, infallible, without error in our Bibles insofar as our Bibles are consistent with the original manuscripts, you with me? And the word Elohim is used in the Hebrew and it's been interpreted these two different ways. And I've read several commentaries on this and evangelical scholars, they land on both sides. Some believe it's to be translated heavenly beings. Others believe it's to be translated God here. The issue some take with it being translated God is because of the fact that the psalmist says, we are a little lower, which they would argue that we're not a little lower. We're we're infinitely less than God because he's infinite, right? Now, of course, the the other side will say, we're dealing with Hebrew poetry here. And remember, the language is not exact. And at times, in poetry, the language will be a bit exaggerated to make a point. They use exaggerated language, figurative language. But many also come back and say, they would argue, no, it can't be that because if it was, it would say you have made him a little lower than yourself because the psalmist has been talking about God in the second person throughout the psalm, okay? So they would argue, no, it's not that. That What he's talking about here is heavenly beings or angels, celestial beings. But many take issue with that as well because they say, though we are less than they are in certain ways, celestial beings, angels, in, in terms of ability and because of the fact that we are fallen and sinful, many would argue that we're more significant than... Angels, in that we're the ones created in God's image. We're the ones whom God came to redeem. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 that we will one day rule over angels. And for all of those reasons, people will argue, that we're, we're, though we are lower than them in certain ways in terms of ability at this time, there are many ways in which we are not lower than they are. So they, they go back and forth, all right? On this. Now, I, I, I tend to agree with the way the ESV translates it as heavenly beings, but there's arguments made for both. But whichever one it is, listen, bring you back a little bit. I know that was a lot there. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, wasn't it? But though they land on either side, it doesn't change the, the, the point that the psalmist is making here. You see, many get hung up on the comparison between God and man, or man and angels. But the point the psalmist is emphasizing here is man's place in creation. The point that's being highlighted, the point that's being made here is man's place in comparison with all other created beings. Listen, though we are less than God and though we have greater restrictions on us when compared to heavenly beings, we are more significant than everything in creation because when God created us, he made us in his image for himself and for his glory. And for that reason, we should praise him. And in the following verses, we learn Not only has God made us in his image and not only did he first create us in in right relationship with him, but he has also placed us in a position of authority over his created world. The God with all authority has placed us in authority over his creation. Look at verse 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea so we learn here not only are we the most significant the most important of God's created beings but we also learn here we've been given authority and dominion over his creation the psalmist says you have given him man dominion Over the works of your hands, you have put how many things? Some things? Most things? All things. You put all things under his feet. So the psalmist is is reflecting on these truths. On the fact that God is creator of everything, yet mindful of us. And and he's saying, for this reason, God is to be worshipped. For this reason, we're to come before him and say, God, your name is great in all the earth. You are glorious, majestic, and excellent from on high. And you are glorious and majestic and excellent from up close, from below. So that's the reason for worship. Then notice third and finally, third and final characteristic of a praise psalm here. We have a further call to praise. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, repeat of verse 1. We've come full circle. The psalmist started this psalm with this and then went on to give further points of praise by explaining the, the scope of God's greatness, stating God is glorious from far above the scope of heaven and out of the mouths of babies and infants. And then he gives the reason for praise by explaining to us that God is creator of everything, but is also mindful of us. And now he returns to what he said in verse one to give this further call to praise. He's saying this in light of all of this. God's name is majestic. His name is great. His name is glorious. His name is excellent. In all the earth. I want to close this morning with this question Is this your perspective? Is this the way you view God? Is this consistent with your thoughts about Him? When you think of God, Do you think of him as limitless and transcendent and majestic and infinite and also as mindful of us and imminent and near and personal and intimate and close? Do you see his glory in all things? Do you see his glory from on high? Do you see his glory from up close? Do you see his greatness in the heavens and out of the mouths of babies and infants? Do you realize that he is creator of all that is and that he is also mindful of you? If not, best explanation can be that you do not know him. If you're here this morning and do not share the perspective of the psalmist, chances are good you don't know the God of the psalmist. You don't know the God of Psalm 8. And if that's you, I have good news for you this morning. The good news is you can come to know him. Our God has made himself known in a variety of ways. He's made himself known in creation. We're told the heavens declare the glory of God. He's also made himself known to us in his word, right? Said that time and time again. And most importantly, he has made himself known to us through his son, the Lord Jesus this is the extent that God has gone to to be known by us. He has identified with us in every way so that we in turn could identify with him. The God who is glorious beyond the heavens, who is limitless and transcendent and majestic and infinite, the God who created all that is with his fingers has come near. He has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus So that we, through him, through Christ, could come to know and worship the one true God. So if you're here this morning and you do not know him, I invite you this morning, before you leave here today, to enter into a right relationship with the living God through his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.